Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is playwright Amy Freed. Long a devotee of Shakespeare's work, Amy's now working on Shrew, which will be performed March through April 2018 at the South Coast Repertory Sigurdstrom Stage Theater and is the subject of this interview. I'd like to offer the prodigious lift of place that she has penned to give you a flavor of her range and aspect. Still warm about the life of the television journalist Jessica Savage, claustrophobia about the relationship between Edgar Allan Poe and his teen bride, the ghoul of Amherst, a little comic piece about the poet Emily Dickinson visiting the deathbed of a classmate, the psychic life of savages concerning the lives of poets, Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, Freedom Land, The Beard of Avon, Safe in Hell, Restoration Comedy, a reworking of the Restoration Era comedies by Sibber and Vanbrew, You, Nero, a comedy about the Roman Emperor Nero, commissioned by South Coast Repertory and Berkeley Rep, Hell to Pay, concerning factory farming and the Monster Builder. Amy Fried's work has been produced at New York Theatre Workshop, Seattle Repertory, American Conservatory Theatre, Goodman Theatre, Playwrights Horizons, Woolly Mammoth Theatre Company, among other theatres around the country. Along with being nominated as a Pulitzer Prize finalist for Freedom Land, Amy Fried's received the Joseph Kesselring Prize, the Charles MacArthur Award, and has several times won the L.A. Drama Critics Circle Award. Amy Fried earned a degree in acting at Southern Methodist University, her Master's of Fine Arts at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. She lives in San Francisco, where she is an artist in residence at Stanford University. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Amy Fried. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Well, and as I am wont to say in interviews such as this, welcome to a spoiler-free coverage, especially since this is yet a work in progress, correct? That's correct. Well, one premise of Shrew, and we're putting an exclamation mark every time you hear Shrew, folks, uh, one premise of the play might be that it's time that we go back in time and hear the 16th century woman give her version, say her piece as Taming of the Shrew has often been regarded as a problem comedy. How long has it been rocking around in your psyche? Well, probably since I first performed in the play when I was a very young actor in a very small theater in New York. <laughs> it's a play that's problematic for um, not just women, but for men these days. That's been true for some decades now. It's become more and more difficult to enjoy it at its face value for the unequal treatment of the sexes in the play. So... From your a woman's mind in the 2017s, you are a bit of a Renaissance woman yourself. What are you channeling in this robust script? Well, ever since I, I began writing for theater and stopped trying to be an actor, which was a great relief, um, <laughs> I've had a, a real love and affection for old classical comedy. I, I like just on some simple levels. I like how many people are on stage. I like the kind of rollicking sense of the discovery of language and what it can do. Um, it, there's a size to it that in our moment of theater is a little bit lost except for the musical form. As people that remember going to theater 30, 40 years ago might recall, sometimes you'd see the whole stage filled 
you'd see comedy played out in a very broad canvas. And so for me, the plays of the Restoration, the plays of Shakespeare are really fun theatrically and for audiences on all kinds of levels because they're so complex. They have these A plots and these B plots, and they have yes. high flute and sentiments, and they also have knockabout farce. They're also refreshingly pungent, honest, you know, dirty, truthful, <laughs> elegant, all of those things. So, Shrew, I've also, even as it's a little bit troubling, well, can be a lot troubling, right. you can sense that Shakespeare is after something else. You can sense that this is true in so many of his plays. He is somebody who throughout his career tried to break through the forms and moments of history and saw something new coming. He was always after something richer, something deeper, and even in Taming of the Shrew, you can feel that. So I kind of um, enjoyed, I don't think of it as an intervention in Shakespeare so much as a mining of Shakespeare for what was really maybe true in his impulses to say something different about men, women, and love in that era. So I think I'm liberating it <laughs> rather than fighting it. <laughs> I was going to wrap up with the line, but I think you bring the point forward in what I want to discuss is that as in the reviews like your play Beard of Avon, some of the critics say uh, one doesn't need to be an aficionado of Shakespeare uh, and it, it, that it surely it enriches the audience. And I'd venture to say that Shrew might push taming aside. Well, I, that's, of course, my secret dream. It would be you know, a very happy moment in my, in my life to feel like I've been able to add something to a body of work that might get performed for more than a year or so. You know, oh. I would love that. Theater is very temporal. Uh, play is usually as good as the few years in which it was written, and there are very few plays that can come back and back over a stretch of even five or ten years. Right. You know, which is one of the, the poignant things about that being one's form as a writer. So with, I felt like there's a real need in um, our own canon of work that we like to produce over and over. I feel like if there's any play in the Shakespeare canon that could stand an alternative, it's that play. I really think we've reached a moment where it's just not performable in a feel-good way anymore. Well, And that's the only one of his plays I feel that uh, Right, about. right, and that's what I'm thinking, you know. It's, it's presumptuous for us in 2017 to say, well, Shakespeare would grant that, this, that his be put aside and this be put in front, but what... For, for everyone to read the play and to see it performed, the point is really well made. Well, you're still, as I mentioned earlier, you're still working on a draft. Are topical developments a temptation to you? And I'm, you know, I'm thinking of Me Too movement sensibilities. I'm thinking of lots of different things. And are those a challenge for you as a, a playwright redraft, redrawing this play? Uh, not in quite the way I think you're asking. Okay. It's a challenge for me because every play, and certainly every play that we consider a historical or a classical comedy or tragedy, I mean, topical references impact production of absolutely everything. Right. I saw a wonderful, wonderful production of Hamlet last year in uh, London where the costume is contemporary and the outside of Claudius's Claudius's house was a pool house in Santa Monica. Oh, you know, okay. It's like, or you see, everybody who's tackling a classical theme or subject 
is addressing present moment. And that's natural. That's been true since Shakespeare's day. There's no fixed point in time. So this plays interesting because, for me, as a challenge, because I am having it reference its historical moment, its own historical moment, so that Kate and Petruchio, without giving too much away in my play, are people that don't belong in the 16th century. Ah, yes. So in order to do that, they're misfits. They see something else, and they're looking for something different than the historical assignment of what they're supposed to be as men and women in that time period. So in order to make that play, I have to stay in that period more than any contemporary production of Shakespeare would have to do, because my people are trying to get out of it. And in that sense, I think it's sort of for all times, because aren't we all facing who we are on the deepest level of ourselves and our personhood and what the times tell us we must be? That's as true in our moment as it was in the, sure. it, it 400 years ago, the inner soul and the outer world, which changes every 10, 20, 30 years, and the struggle of our most personal selves against what is assigned us is more the point of my play. So I may reference, you know, there might be a clown wearing a pussy hat. Oh, <laughs> I never okay. say never. never, never. <laughs> but your, your anachronisms, though, are tour de forces with there, they could last a generation or two, but the, the, let's say an anachronism that's referring to some stolen Greek relics, and that could span yeah. the centuries. But for those who understand, some of those Greek relics have been returned to the, the origins of the, the whole prov- the chain of the provenance that you pulled off some really genius references that way. Oh, well, that, thank you. That's, that's nice of you to say. I mean, for anybody who's a, a geek, you know, like there are just a, a few of us that love to go through old books and lose ourselves in old worlds, and that's like not for everybody, but I hope there is some things in my place that are for those people. <laughs> Ab- oh, absolutely. And also, as you said, you are, you're being faithful to the genre in your redrafting of this play, I'd, and I'd like you to talk about a bit about the the play's structure, how you maintain that. The meter, I I think you've changed up the meter, and I don't know if there's you're winking at other more contemporary genres, hip hop or other in what you're presenting. So if you talk about the structure, the meter, and and a little bit more about the characters too, in a bit. Yeah, I had a lot of time to think about how to use language. One of the goals I've had with two, three plays now, Restoration Comedy most recently, I guess, and this play is how to make language that's a little bit, that leans a little more on imagery and rhythm, how to make it speakable, how to make it easy to speak and easy to understand. As it was in its own time period, I don't think there's any great public or audience service to be doing stuff for its own sake because it's old-timey or antique. Right. I, I think the the fun is when an audience goes through a listening journey with a play and feels uh, that it's completely organic in its own weird way, like good poetry is. I think of somebody like Robert Frost who said, uh, you know, who who coined the phrase, or at least I think he did, sound the sound of sense. Oh. <laughs> that the sound of poetry is really the deeper is the ringing of the bell of our deeper feeling. 
or the sound of a joke hits like a you know a crack of a whip and it and it explodes you if it hits right it hits on your emotional core not your scholar core so some of the pleasures of older theater that went on that used the ear more than we do today perhaps was that it got your heart racing because of the rhythms of it so i'm very curious about iambic pentameter that way because it's a right. heartbeat rhythm it has that pulse quality that keeps you falling forward in the action and so I, I wanted to preserve that. Um, at the same time, I was doing for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival what they are deeming a translation of Taming of the Shrew. This is for an earlier project. Okay. So their goal with that project was similar in that they're trying to create these forms of Shakespeare plays that a contemporary audience can understand while they're listening to it, while preserving Shakespeare's pressure on the language long way of saying I spent a lot of time with the verse and then I spent a lot of time as a person who's been in theater for you know 30 years going okay so this line scans iambically how does it sound how does it feel does it work in the moment can an actor say it can an audience get it and then just kind of with my own ear on acting and speaking trying to make a line conform to what I think the moment and feeling of it wants. So I did use iambic pentameter. It's not perfectly regular. It always has some sense of rhythm to it that was in my ear as I was working it out loud. But I'm not I didn't make a religion of perfection, I guess. Although the line the lines do conform a good bit of the time to a regular iambic pulse. And like Shakespeare was only sixty I think they did a study in his Poetry line, his iambic pentameter line, is only about 65, 67% evident in the plays. Uh-huh. He was notable for how much variation, uh, unlike someone like Marlowe. He broke the rules everywhere when it served the drama. Okay. So I'm trying to stay as, I guess I'd say more in the spirit of Shakespeare than the letter of iambic poetry. <laughs> so I remember that, you know, the the. Also, the, the rhyme will signal the end of a scene, end of an act, and all that. But there's rhymes that are sort of in earlier parts of a speaker's script. Is that So does the rhyme, is it signaling something to us? So we can learn that from you now. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that's the, um, I mean, I want to make it sound like it's a very geeky play. I'm just trying to sort of make, blow the dust off Shakespeare and, and make the styles that he uses right. available to modern writers in a way in modern audiences. Oh yes, and Shakespeare, I mean, is marvelous because when because his changes of meter always signify a change in tone or consciousness. Right. I mean, one of the most interesting things to me is like when the iambic rhythm reverses itself for instance and becomes a trochaic rhythm which is backwards instead of that weak strong beat of the iambic beat it goes a trochee, you know, and that, and often that's like when it's witches or spirits or supernatural things. So it's like the whole tide of the natural world turns backwards and the meter will change. Or lovers will be beside themselves and they'll start rhyming. You know, it's that kind of yes. shift that's so much fun. And it's like you just take in, you feel that the world is elevating or that the world is cracking or... Or when a character's in a state of nervous breakdown or crisis, they're so screwed up they can't even be regular in their meter anymore. It's all disjointed or irregular. So, yeah, I mean, these are wonderful tools for um, language use. And 
I think all poets and writers and people that write for the speaking voice employ it spontaneously and naturally. So I was, you know, just kind of expanding what we think of as being modern writing, I guess, with this, and hoping to pass it off as natural. So ideally, you'll never even notice. <laughs> well, I and I'm thinking your tools, Amy Freed, are going to be to give momentum, I think, to theater attendance and and our participation, our engagement in theater after Shrew. I, I really, it was so engaging and so, as you're saying, ringing the bell of deeper thinking. It was, it, my bell was clanging and was getting past my bedtime. So, oh, that's so sweet of you to true. say. I'm, I'm glad. Oh, absolutely. My guest, if you just joined us, is playwright Amy Freed with her very new play, Shrew, with an exclamation at the end, to be performed March 24th through April 21st, 2018, at the South Coast Repertory Ziggers from Stage Theater, directed by Art Mankey. It's a little advance notice, but that's a good thing, So, because we want to make sure everybody knows. And I'm actually thinking it, this is a school group field trip, natural, and I hope there's sufficient endowments at the South Coast Rep for lots of schools to come to. It's the humanities lesson that they're going to get this year of 2017-2018, I'm going to say. So speaking of tools, and let's break it down to a one. I have one little, tiny little word choice thing I wanted to have you mm-hmm. open up. So it, it illustrates your the range, but it, and it gives you a chance to go even in a, a little bit more detail. What's a swiving wife? Swiving. Where did swiving come from? Whose generation is that? Uh, swiving... I don't even remember if that's in the place. I think it's Do just before the uh, the real estate auction, the the pitch there going on, but uh, I'm not sure. Swiving, swiving is an old word for uh, fornicating. Okay. And, uh, and, and it you... was used in the Restoration more than Shakespeare. That's why I went, oh, did I put that in there? Yeah, it's Thank in there. Thank you, Claudia. I may... Keep it, keep it in there. Oh no, no, no. So I mean, so everybody knows there's, the, as you said, the, there's body references and there's all kinds, and it's yeah. but you slice it so many ways, you would make a rapper blush. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, rap, certainly, rap and hip hop and that kind of improvisational sparkle is certainly what the Elizabethan and Jacobean era did so much of in the stages. It was just like kind of a a virtuosity in the moment that we see in things like stand-up and improv. Right. But it's you're... Just being able to be that sharp in the moment on your feet, that is extraordinary. Extraordinary. But you are the playwright, and you're writing it down. But uh, I, I'm, I'm going to be interested in knowing, I'm reading the play now and seeing the play in the spring, how the work in progress is going to adapt what you know your original drafts are how are you going to work with the actors and continue to tinker away with what they're actually going to say in the and will it change over the actual production well yeah with the new play it's like there's the manuscript draft that you you finish and it gets to a point where you can go into rehearsal and then for me i don't know if this is the case for all writers i i'm probably a bit different because my background was for much of my life in acting. That was what I pursued. So um, for me, that shift from the page to the stage changes everything. Okay. I don't mean every word, but every possibility becomes open. And I mean, the heart of this play is like, who are Kate and Petruchio and what is that journey? And I think that 
once you have two actors that are beginning to channel that journey and bring their own emotional, experiential, chemical humanity to it, then you really go on another route because what an actor can or can't play, what comes up for them in terms of what their feeling is about the role, their feeling about the truth or not of a moment, Mm -hmm. that's gold because then it's like you've half created these people or two-thirds of the way created them, and then the actors discover what they can or what where it feels like it's a, a speech short or a moment short or there's a crisis that hasn't been articulated. I mean, it's it's really exciting. It's, it's crazy because it's like they're invented characters, but, you know, now they're not. They're actually living and breathing. It's the addictive thing about theater. It's not like any other art form that way. It's like you're bringing these dreams um, onto the stage where they become sort of real for a while. So the, the so yes, I rewrite. I yes. I listen to what's going on and I rewrite. So the director Art Mankey, he auditions each of the actors, and you're gonna then you continue that there's still that as you're saying there's still yet a third of the, of the shaping fleshing out of that, of that character once the the you begin working with them with this brand new play. Yeah, and it's comedy too. So all yeah. of that's timing. So even simple stuff, it's shocking to me. It was really interesting to learn when I began writing how everything, including like the Seekerstrom, is a very wide stage, for example. Yes. So it takes a long time for a character to walk into view there or walk into center. So, you know, sometimes you need more language. Sometimes you need less. Sometimes you need a reveal. Sometimes you need a walk on. And all of that has to be integrated in terms of line length, placement of speeches. Do you need a silent scene to take place? It's like all of this design wow. of time and what people say and what's happening on stage and diversion. It's just, And there's that whole kind of nuts and bolts thing about stagecraft. And Art's a wonderful director that way. He's a, a real Swiss watchmaker. He can, <laughs> you know, handle uh, the, the choreography and the... Um, rhythms of the stage picture as well as anybody I've ever worked with, so I'm excited to work with him on that. But it's a real collaboration. And still at the heart is all like, who is this Petruchio in this play? And who is this Kate? And from such an unfortunate beginning, can a relationship that we believe in really come to be? You know, So it's all kinds of levels from the really silly. Uh, the clowns are huge in this play compared to the Shakespeare play. <laughs> Yes. So that's dangerous. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we don't get that sense of play, but we do there are there are some very contemporary references that are that just are a hoot there. So you would be responsible for adapting your new play when it's presented on a different stage then, so you have a less of a physical platform to fill it up, or is that what the director's role would be in subsequent productions? Well, the first play, the first production always improves the script tremendously. So a lot of things that are discovered um, are going to be good for whatever configuration okay. it goes into. Okay. Because you just learn, and the audience is the big other element, because for comedy especially, you just sit there in previews and listen to them and watch them and hear them and sense what works and sense what doesn't. And that's always the hardest, I mean, the most <laughs> painful and the most useful birth rite of passage for a yes. new comedy 
so by the time it plays at South Coast, the play will be have evolved a lot in the preview process and in the rehearsal process, and a lot of those changes will be good forever. I know when I uh, wrote Beard of Avon, it was it's not dissimilar in that there's a number of locations and it has to travel fairly quickly. Yes, that had maybe seven whistle stops before it went to New York, ranging from very small theaters to you know theaters like the Goodman that are vast. And I was amazed at how much difference the size of the theater made in terms of how you had to produce to accommodate. Some of that's the director. It's like if you've got a great huge stage, you know, you may want a huge teeming market scene with all hands on deck. Yes. If you've got a little studio theater, you want to keep it intimate. Right, so, right. So some of this is the director's work. But it, it just was a lot of evolution, a lot of turning on the wheel <laughs> to get the play into a kind of form that was sturdy and ready to go. Um so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I think this, because Taming of the Shrew is an Elizabethan play that is a fantasy of Italy. Yes. The very And now my play is an American contemporary play that is a fantasy of an Elizabethan world that is imagining an Italian world. It's three degrees of fantasy removed from anything <laughs> That's real. That's exactly. Oh, yes, of course. And oh, the geographic puns and uh, interplay yeah. is just no one is going to you're not going to know folks until you see that. So that well, this is a much anticipated pleasure. My guest today is Amy Freed with her very new play, Shrew, to be performed <laughs> March 24th, April 21st of 2018 at the South Coast Repertories Seekers from Stage Theater, directed by Art Mankey. Thank you so much, Amy Freed, for where you bring us today and the time you've given us today to talk about this upcoming pleasure. Thank you, Claudia. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Your looks are laughable Unphotographable Yet you're my favorite work of art.